Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, beginning at verse 17. As he began to take the road again, a man came running up and fell at his feet and asked him, Good master, tell me please what must I do to be sure of eternal life? I wonder why you call me good, returned Jesus. No one is good, only God. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not cheat, honor thy father and mother. Master, he replied, I have carefully kept all these since I was quite young. Jesus looked steadily at him, and his heart warmed toward him. Then he said, there is one thing you still lack. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money away to the poor. You will have riches in heaven. And then come back and follow me. At these words, the man's face fell. And he went away in deep distress, for he was very rich. Then Jesus looked round at them all and said to his disciples, How difficult it is for those who have great possessions to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were staggered at these words. But Jesus continued, Children, you don't know how hard it can be to get into the kingdom of heaven. Why a camel could more easily squeeze through the eye of a needle than a rich man get into the kingdom of God. At this their astonishment knew no bounds. And they said to one another, Then who can possibly be saved? Jesus looked straight at them and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter burst out, But look, we have left everything and followed you. I promise you return, Jesus. Nobody leaves home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and the Gospels without getting back a hundred times over. Now in this present life, homes and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and land, though not without persecution, and in the next world, eternal life. But many who are first now will then be last, and the last now will then be first. They were now on their way going up to Jerusalem. Jesus walked on ahead. The disciples were dismayed at this, and those who followed were afraid. Then once more he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. We are now going up to Jerusalem, he said, as you can see. And the Son of Man will be betrayed into the power of the chief priests and scribes. They are going to condemn him to death and hand him over to pagans who will jeer at him and spit at him and flog him and kill him. But after three days he will rise again. Then Zebedee's two sons, James and John, approached him, saying, Master, we want you to grant us a special request. What do you want me to do for you, answered Jesus. Give us permission to sit one each side of you 
in the glory of your kingdom. <clears throat> you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I have to drink? Can you go through the baptism I have to bear? Yes, we can, they replied. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink the cup I am drinking, and you will undergo the baptism which I have to bear. But as for sitting on either side of me, that is not for me to give. Such places belong to those for whom they are intended. When the other ten heard about this, they began to be highly indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them all to him and said, You know that the so-called rulers in the heathen world lord it over them, and their great men have absolute power. But it must not be so among you. No, whoever among you wants to be great must become the servant of you all. And if he wants to be first among you, he must be the slave of all men. For the Son of Man himself has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life to set many others free. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving it, accompanied by his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar who was sitting in his usual place by the side of the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to call out, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Many of the people told him sharply to keep quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have pity on me. Jesus stood quite still and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying, it's all right now, get up, he's calling you. At this, he threw off his coat, jumped to his feet, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, he asked him. Oh, master, let me see again. Go on your way then, returned Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And he recovered his sight at once and followed Jesus along the road. Well, now this evening we come to these verses 17 to 52 in the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel. They not only complete this subsection, which I have entitled The Cross of Christ, the Principle of True Service, but they also um, complete the larger division of the servant of the Lord at work. So we have now this evening reached both the end of the largest single major division in uh, uh, Mark and also we reach the end of this um, section of that division. After this when we come to the first verse of chapter 11, there is in fact only one week of the Lord's earthly life left. Mark dwells very much upon that last single week of our Lord. So the verses we consider tonight are under the shadow of that cross. Now Mark selects for us three incidents in which the 
essential lessons of this section, the cross of Christ, the principle of true service, and of this whole major division, the servant of the Lord at work, are summed up. There are three very wonderful stories. The first is the story graphically told of the rich young ruler. The second is the story of John and James intrigue. Very human story indeed. And the last story is the story of blind Bartimaeus. All three um, incidents are to do with what is entailed in fully following Christ. What, in fact, is involved in sharing his service. If you take um, your Bible, Mark chapter 10, you look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And then in the same um, incident, in the Lord's explanation of it, verse 28, Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And then if you look at verse 32, they were on their way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them and they were amazed. And they that followed were afraid. And verse 52, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And straightway he received his sight and followed him on the way. Well, I think it's quite clear to us that uh, all three of these incidents to do with following uh, and what is entailed in really fully following the Lord. Now, the first incident speaks of the cost of following Christ. The losing of our lives completely. The breaking of our dependence upon our own resources, whatever those resources may be. That's the first great lesson we shall see. Uh, it's all to do with, perhaps we could say, a negative side of the Lord's dealings. If we follow, fully follow him, we've got to lose our lives. We can't. If we hang on to our lives, we're turned out of the way automatically. We're turned out of the way. You cannot follow the Lord very far before you come to this great issue. Are you going to lose your life? Now that's what this first thing is all about. Losing one's life. Breaking of all those things. Or the breaking of our dependence upon those things which we could call our possessions or our resources. The second incident takes this matter of fully following Christ 
a step forward, a major step forward. It is not merely what we give up, but what we are introduced to. If we are going to fully follow the Lord, there's not only a life to be lost, there is a realm to be introduced to. Drinking his cup, being baptized with his baptism. The third incident speaks not only of the clear vision that will be granted to us if we fully follow Christ, but of where that path leads. Well, we'll look at them all, the three, uh, a little more closely. I have, therefore, as you can see, entitled this subsection, Following Christ, the Cross in Action. In other words, what I really want to say is this. We cannot follow Christ far before the cross starts to operate. And all three of these incidents um, exemplify that statement. Well, now, we've got a lot to look at this evening, so let's get right down to it straight away. First of all, the cost of following Christ, the losing of our lives, the story of the rich young ruler. If you take John chapter 10, from verse 17 to 31, we have the story of the rich young ruler and um, the um, discussion that came out of it, out of that incident. Now, these verses record the story of what we call, of whom we call, rich young ruler. It is quite clear that this incident made a very deep impression uh, upon the disciples, for it is told in all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. From Matthew we learn that he was a young man in his teens. From Luke we learn that he was a ruler, not a ruler of a synagogue. He was far too young for that. You had to have some graying hairs for that, um, but uh, he was a ruler in the sense that he was a member of the aristocratic ruling class, probably the Sadducean class. In the notes, you'll have the um, uh, references for that. Now, as they were setting out on the day's journey, this young man ran up and flinging himself on his knees before the Lord Jesus, he poured out his inner love. Everything about this young man is sincere, earnest, open. Note one or two things straight away. First of all, in verse 17, a man ran up and knelt before him. Not many had done that. You remember the leper? In this same gospel, Mark, he knelt before the Lord. But not many had actually knelt before the Lord. Certainly no one of this class had ever knelt in the dust, in the road, publicly, before the Lord Jesus Christ. It made no small impact upon the disciples. They belonged to an altogether different class, all of them, with the possible exception of John James. 
And none of them belonged to what we could call the ruling class. The man's clothes, the very wealth, the refinement that sort of breathed out of every part of his being. It made no small impact upon them to see this man kneeling in the dust in, public, in, the pu in a public highway before the Lord Jesus. Then I want you to notice the way he speaks to the Lord. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that is a very unusual title. It wasn't uh, um, an ordinary title used. And it would seem that this uh, young man was obviously very open and very sympathetic to Christ. He'd evidently heard of him. Perhaps he'd even listened to him before. Uh, and the fact that he said, good teacher, even if his concept of goodness was wrong, um, uh, shows that he was open and sympathetic. And then I want you to notice the word inherit. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man had obviously inherited his great wealth. You can see that from verse 22. It says that that saying his countenance fell and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had inherited these uh, great possessions. So he quite naturally said, Lord, I've inherited all this. How can I inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Then I want you also to notice another thing about this young man. He was, in one sense, quite self-sufficient. He had all the wealth and property he needed. He had kept the law, verses 19 and 20. He said, I've kept all these things from my youth upward. He obviously believed in goodness, for the way he said, good teacher, denotes straight away that he recognized goodness and believed in goodness as a policy. He was, from all accounts, a very good, decent, upright, sincere young man. In fact, he had no apparent need. There was only one thing that bothered this young man. What happened after death? It is perhaps a rather interesting thing that this is one of the things that often bothers very wealthy people. I remember some years ago, this is digressing, listening or watching on television a recorded interview with Paul Getty. And the only thing he was afraid of was what happens after death. Well, it was the same with this young man. It's the only thing that bothered him. His money, his wealth, his property gave him the status he required, gave him the uh, freedom he required, gave him the independence he needed. He was not in any other kind of need. <coughs> this thing only bothered him. What happened when this life now, in answering the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Christ put his finger on the young man's dependence upon his own resources, his wealth and possessions. Now, we must get this quite clear. It is not that wealth or property are in themselves bad anymore than that poverty in itself is good. 
Surely no one here believes that poverty in itself is a good thing. Wealth or property is not in itself necessarily a bad thing. And uh, there are a number of scriptures I could immediately quote to you. Um, I can think of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 and uh, verse uh, 17 where the Apostle Paul says, Charge them that are rich in this present world, that they be not high-minded, nor have their hopes set on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, that they be ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may indeed lay hold on the life which is life indeed. Or 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17, we read uh, this um, uh, statement. But whoso hath the world's goods and beholdeth his brother in need and shutteth up his compassion from him, how doth the love of God abide in him? And then again, back to 1 Timothy, we read this, that we are, it says um, in verse uh, 9 and 10, but they that are minded to be rich, that is covetous, fall into a temptation and a snare of many foolish and hurtful lusts, such as drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money, not money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, which some reaching after have been led astray from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now what the Lord was trying to get at with this young man was not his wealth and his property, his possessions, what the Lord was getting at was the man's dependence upon his wealth and his possessions. The Lord exposed this when he said, there's one thing only that you lack. Now I wonder what the man, the young man immediately thought, now what's coming? Go and sell whatsoever thou hast and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. In other words, can you let go of that, or will you choose that rather than me? That was the point. Upon what are you really dependent? Faced with the issue, what will you let go of? Me or your possessions? was too much for him. And perhaps one of the saddest pictures drawn for us in the New Testament is the graphic one here. His face fell and he went away in deep distress for he was very rich. Now I want you to notice one or two other things before we get the lesson from this. Have you, will you notice in <coughs> verse 18, do let those two girls in. Um, in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now there are folk that have often 
queried this. How did the Lord Jesus say, why do you call me good? We all know he's good. For is he not the one who was without sin? Is he not perfect in every way? Then how did he say, why do you call me good? As if he was rebuking him. There is none good, only God. What did the Lord mean? Christ was not saying that he was not good. But he was getting at the young man's concept of goodness. That's the point. He, that is the young man, obviously thought that goodness was a human product. The natural result of a person's initiative and energy. Verse 20. You see? Teacher, all these things I have done from my youth. He quite emphatically declares that he has always kept the law. Such a sense always produces a feeling of goodness. If you know anyone who feels they've never done anything wrong, you know nearly always people who believe in goodness and believe they are good. And even if they are deep down are not quite, even if they're outwardly they're not prepared to say, well, I'm a good person, they will say, well, I tried to be good. Get that again and again. It seems quite clear also that he thought of the Lord Jesus in exactly the same way as a good man, good teacher, someone who's kept the law, someone who's whose own initiative and energy. It's something inside us, naturally, <laughs> as human beings. Now, Christ declares that true goodness comes from God alone, that in the fallen world, in this fallen world, God alone is good, and that goodness is the product of God's nature and character. It comes through union with Him, dependence on Him. There is no other goodness. So that's what the Lord Jesus was trying to get over to the young man. You think you're good. You believe you've kept the law. Now, in a moment, I'm going to put my finger on something which will prove to you whether You've kept the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy might. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man failed. His wealth, his possessions came before God. This is why the scripture says when obviously there are many so-called good people, people that we would say, looking at it from the horizontal point of view, are good people. But the scripture says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When the Lord quoted the law in verse 19, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He was drawing out the young man's concept of goodness. His goodness, the idea he had, was that he had been able to keep the law, and therefore he was good. How much? We might, well, uh, we might well wonder how much of that was due to the security and wealth of his background. People are not normally tempted to steal or cheat when they've got plenty of capital. There are many other things we could say. Well, never mind. Then the Lord revealed the one fundamental lack and weakness 
Verse 21. It was the young man's trust in his wealth and capital. If the young man was to inherit eternal life, if he was to have eternal wealth and capital, then he must give up and give away that in which he trusted and follow Christ instead. Unless he was prepared to forsake his own resources, he could not follow Christ. The issue was whether he was prepared to lose his own life. It was as absolute as that. Mark chapter 10, verse 21, is only another way of saying Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Let me explain. Go, only one thing thou dost lack. Go and sell whatsoever thou hast, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Is only another way of saying, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. He that loseth his life, the same shall find it. And he that holds on to his life, the same shall lose it. How beautifully Mark records um, Christ's action in uh, verse 21. Christ looking upon him loved says in the old version. The authorized version says, Christ beholding him loved him. In the New English Bible it says, Christ looked straight at him and his heart warmed toward him. And in the J.B. Phillips it says, Christ looked looking steadily at him, his heart warmed toward him. What a wonderful picture of the servant of the Lord. What a wonderful picture of the kind of person Christ is. Not a machine, not automatic, not just sort of grinding on, on well sort of trod lines, but the kind of person who can be moved. I think that's marvelous, because you see, he hasn't changed. Don't forget that. He hasn't changed. He is exactly the same tonight as he was then. It is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that marvelous? It puts a new, it gives another dimension to prayer. It means that sometimes there are things we can say to the Lord which he just looks at us steadily and loves us. He just warms to us. He's not some great automatic machine that you sort of pour in certain data, facts and figures, and out the other end it all comes. It's often how we think of him. We think of him that once he was easily moved with people's infirmities and, and, and so on, but now no longer. Now he's gone to heaven. He's rather different. He's cold and more distant and it's all correct. And Oh, no, not at all. It's all correct. But it's swallowed up in life. Not that kind of outward legal correctness. Oh, I think this is a beautiful picture of Christ. He looked steadily at him. He looked directly at him. He looked earnestly at him and loved him. Some of you may have seen that wonderful picture by the great German painter, Heine, which is entitled, The Lord Looked Upon Him and Loved Him. It's the look of the 
art. I, I always think it's the best picture that was ever painted of the Lord Jesus Court. The whole idea. However, we will not digress on that. Um, that was the issue anyway. Now it's quite clear from the following verses, from verses 23 to 31, that the disciples understood that Christ was not merely speaking of material possessions in the narrow sense, but of those riches or possessions or goods, whatever they may be, in which we put our trust. Now look at verse 23. And Jesus looked round and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Now, the word riches in verse 23 is not the usual word. It means, for riches, it means simply goods or possessions. One of the commentators says, Things. And that's rather good, I think, for us. How hard it is for those who have things to enter the kingdom of God, to have goods, to have possessions. And will you also notice that in verse 24, the simpler and smaller um, statement of the Lord is the oldest. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. You will see in the older version, it has children, how hard it is for those who trust in things or in riches or in goods to enter the kingdom of God. But that is not in the, in the oldest manuscripts. And then again, will you notice in verse 26, and this is very interesting, the disciples quite spontaneous reaction was not, but how then can a rich man be saved? But who then can be saved? Now, there's a great difference between those two. Obviously, the disciples understood from what the Lord said that it ruled everyone out. They were not rich men. They would have thought they were in. In fact, Peter in verse 28 makes the point. Lord, he says, suddenly seeing the point, we've left everything. <laughs> we're in. We've left everything. They saw that it wasn't a question just of rich and wealthy people. That somehow what the Lord was saying was not just to do with material possessions and goods in the narrow sense, but something more than that. Those resources, those things which we put our trust in, whatever they may be, and they differ from person to person and family to family. If we are going to enter the kingdom, then we must be broken of our dependence upon our own resources. No matter of what our riches may consist, money, possessions, property, background, intellect, natural talents, personality, whatever our riches may be, the thing that we put our trust in, we depend, we are dependent upon. 
We have to be shaved of them all to really enter the kingdom of God. It was that that appalled the disciples. How then can anyone really be saved? It is thus as naturally and humanly impossible to enter the kingdom as for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, there are one or two explanations here. Quite a few modernists and liberals have, have, would have us believe that the Lord was really saying that it was a rope. The word camel and rope are very near to each other. And they would say to us, oh, really what the Lord was saying was you can't thread a rope through the eye of a needle, which is really just as stupid when you think about it. But somehow it satisfies them. Uh, that uh, uh, the fact that it's nearer to possibility, I don't know. I have that distinct feeling that perhaps that's what lies behind it. But, um, and then there's the old Christian tradition that there was a postern gate, if you know what a postern gate is. That is not the big city gate, but a small gate in the city wall, which used to be called the Eye of the Needle. And caravans coming in late, camel caravans coming in late to the city, when they could not, uh, when the gates were closed, then they used to go to this small gate and they had to take off all the goods off the camel and the camel had to be pushed through. Now that's the old Christian tradition. And if you go to Bethlehem, they will show you in the church of the Holy Nativity the eye of the needle. One of the old small gates. I am not at all sure about that tradition. It's a very, very interesting one. And I noticed that in this version of, of the study Bible, of the Revised, and it's in the margin, in, in, in the footnotes. But it has very, it is rather weak uh, as far as uh, be, our being able to verify it. It's a very ancient Christian tradition, but I don't think we can bear. No, it was an old proverb in the time. You remember the Lord said, the Pharisees, they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Just as funny, you can imagine everyone guffawing with laughter at the very thought of it. They spend all that time straining out a gnat and they swallow a camel. In exactly the same way, can you imagine trying to push a camel through the eye of a needle? Just think of it. Why, if every sister in the company got behind a camel and pushed, they couldn't get it through the eye of a needle. It is quite ridiculous. So what the Lord was saying was this, that it is as, as naturally and humanly impossible for someone trusting in their own things, in their own possessions, to get into the kingdom. It's as natural as humanly impossible as to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Certainly, if we would see the kingdom coming in power in our own lives, if we would enter into the powerful reality of the throne of God, and the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ in our service, then we must be broken of any dependence we have whatsoever upon our own resources. Fully following Christ entails just that. It is the principle of the cross in action. You say, I'll follow you, Lord. And before you know where you are, you have more power along the road before the principle of the cross starts to operate. What about those things you trust in? That's the issue. Are you going to hold on to them? 
let go of your law? Or will you let go of them? Follow after your law. The issue must come to every one of us, one way or another. We have to lose our lives. And the acid test as to whether, as to whether any child of God has lost their life is their attitude to the things or goods or resources we possess. Anyone can say, I have given him everything. I am following him. But it's our attitude to the things that reveals whether we've lost our lives. Don't you see? If we can lose our lives, the rest follows. I think it is the absolute utterness of the call which so challenges us. Go. Sell whatsoever thou hast, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. How absolutely utter that call is. But there is no other way to follow Christ. There is no other road. No wonder the disciples were first amazed and then exceedingly astonished. They started off with just their eyes opened. They ended up by being absolutely appalled, absolutely astonished beyond measure. Christ reassures them by telling them that God is the God of the impossible. Listen to those wonderful words in verse 27. Jesus looked at them, same kind of word again, looked straight at them and said, with men it is impossible but not with God. For all things are possible with God. God gets camels through the eye of a needle. <coughs> now, isn't that marvelous? If you feel you're a camel, <laughs> and the way through is just like the eye of a needle, you say, it can't be done. Oh, it's all right for Hudson Taylor, it was all right for Maria Monson, it's all right for this one, it's all right for Watchman Nee, it's all right for so-and-so and so-and-so, but not for me. But the glory of the whole thing is God is the God of the impossible. That just doesn't mean great big situations. It means your life. This is exactly what the Lord was talking about. The impossibility of you going through. The impossibility of you getting into the powerful reality of the throne of God in your life and service. It is impossible. Make no mistake about it. Part of our spiritual education is to come to recognize the fact that it is with us impossible. We can bang our heads against a brick wall. We can spend our days trying to squeeze camels through the eye of a needle. There are many, many a Christian trying to squeeze camels through such, such uh, needles. It can't be done. But what is impossible with man is gloriously possible with God. When God gets to work, the camel goes through. I think of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. 
Or I think of Philippians 1 and verse 6, where it says, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you is able to, to perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter got the point. And just like Peter, he burst out that they had left everything to follow Christ. He said, oh, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. They were not wealthy landowners, but they had left all their own resources and security for Christ. For Peter, it was a small fishing business. Didn't bring in much of an income. Just a few meager, smelly fishing nets. But he'd left them. Instantly he'd left those nets and all that it had represented of security and independence. He'd left it behind. For Peter, it was not only a little fishing business. It was the meager comforts of a working class home. Yet, for Peter, it represented something, and that's the thing God judges by. By our standards, relatively speaking, Peter had nothing to give up compared with this young man, but by God's standards, knowing Peter, it meant a lot to Peter. Those nets meant just as much to Peter as all those possessions meant to that rich young man. But when the Lord had said, follow me, he had left it and followed him. And this had been so with the others. They'd all paid the price to follow Christ. Christ then pointed out that God is no man's debtor in verse 29 and 30. God is no man's debtor. Whatever we have left for him and for the gospel, we shall receive a hundred times now in this time. Now do mark that, because so often we try to spiritualize it away. The Lord says, God is no man's debtor. If you let go of something, if you leave something, if you allow him to break you of dependence upon something, be absolutely sure the Lord will give you back something much more than that. God is no man's debtor. You'll never be able to get to heaven and say, Oh, I gave up so much. All the way along, Lord, I gave up. And I, the Lord will say, Aha, but just wait. You got back. You got back more and more and more. Whilst you were down there, Surely there was some humor, um, although it's very true and solemn. Yet I'm sure there was some humor when the Lord said to them, with persecutions. He knew what it would cost them, but there was just that little twinkle of humor uh, in that. You will receive a hundred times houses, lands, brothers, mothers, fathers, sisters, children with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Well, that's something I think that we ought to underline. The end of the cross then, even here on earth, is not mere limitation, brokenness, death, sorrow, but increase, fullness, fellowship, 
joy, resurrection life. I can't help thinking of some of these statements in the book of Acts where it says they had all things in common. No man called aught of what he possessed his own. Let us not judge by the world's standards. That's what the Lord is saying in verse 31. Many that are first will be last and the last first. Don't let's judge things by the world's standards and the world's ways. What appears to be first and greatest will in the end for the most part be seen to be last and least. The measure in which we become great is the measure in which we lose our lives for him. Make no mistake about that. God's one gauge for measuring whether we shall be great is how much we have lost our lives for his sake and the gospels. Now it is that kind of service Christ supremely exemplified. I think of that wonderful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter um, 8 and verse 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. It was the Lord Jesus who has exemplified and does exemplify for us this kind of service. Yet we hardly ever hear Christ speaking of what he's given up. Now, isn't that a wonderful point? You read right through the New Testament, the Lord never, never spoke again and again about, oh, I gave up my glory, I gave up my Father's home, I gave up the throne, I gave up everything in heaven to come. He doesn't. He speaks again and again of being sent. Oh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or he speaks in parables of someone being sent by the owner. But it is surely something that is noteworthy that the Lord Jesus hardly ever speaks of all that he gave up. Divine and selfless service is not concerned either with what it has sacrificed nor with what it is going to gain, but only the well-being of those that it serves. The character of my service and the character of your service is often unwittingly revealed by the way we talk of what we have given up for the Lord. You often hear people say, Oh, I had to give up so much. It's the old Peter again. Lo, we've left everything to follow thee. That's not service. That's self. Look at us. We've given up everything. We're ready to go forward. That's not service. The kind of service we see in Christ is the kind of service that is not concerned about what it has given up, nor what even it's going to gain for itself, but only the well-being of those it serves. Well, now, the second incident is the cost I've entitled, the cost of following Christ, drinking his cup and being baptized 
with his baptism. The intrigue of John, of John and James. Now this is from verse 32 to verse 45. This incident took place somewhere on the road to Jerusalem. Mark tells us that Christ was walking ahead of the others by himself and that there was some sense of foreboding over all those that followed. We've got that in verse 32. I wonder what was it about Christ, about his gestures, about his words, or about his very attitude, which, gave, which, which produced this sense of awe in all those that followed. See, they knew him quite well now. Three years they'd lived with him, they'd, they'd, they'd slept in the same room, they'd eaten with him, they'd worked with him. They knew him reasonably well from the physical side. There was something about him that filled them with a sense of awe and uh, foreboding. For the fourth time, Christ spoke to the twelve of his coming passion. It was the clearest and fullest prediction, yet that he had made. And he revealed for the first time the way he would die by crucifixion. You may not realize that, but when he said for the first time, and the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and they will sentence him to death and deliver him up to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will spit upon him and flog him and torture him and crucify him. Did not crucify him, but kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. When he said that, he was really saying crucifixion. So now, for the first time, they realized that he was, that he was talking about crucifixion. It didn't sink into their heads at all. If it had been a Jewish execution, it would have been stony. But because it was a Gentile one, it would be crucifixion. Now then, John and James approached Christ with a request. Although they had not understood the references to his coming passion, they were clear that he was God's Messiah and that he was going to bring the kingdom in. They therefore wanted to bag the two most influential positions and offices in that kingdom. Got that from verses 35, 36 and 37. I use the word bag deliberately because it's exactly the atmosphere of this. They rushed in. Well, I said they rushed in. They worked it out, actually, when the others were not there. And they, and, 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 and they just said it was a family intrigue. They were going to bag these positions of influence. What a picture of... What a human picture, really. And we're all like that. Oh, the squabble sometimes amongst Christians about position and office. The intrigue. Someone has said this was the first ecclesiastical intrigue. Yeah. Now, it was not a question of wanting merely to be near the Lord. If it had, it would be different. It wasn't that at all. These positions on either side of the throne were those occupied by the king's most powerful and influential officers and counsellors. When John and James asked for these positions, it was sheer ambition on their part. But there's more to come. We learn from Matthew, chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, that their mother, the wife of Zebedee, the sister of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, was not only in the intrigue, but probably behind it, like many good Jewish mothers. 
She was a driving force. You remember Rebecca? Just the same. Oh, she was absolutely all out for her two sons, John and James. Now, you see, what most of us don't realize, John and James were cousins of the Lord. They were his cousins. So the whole thing was a family intrigue. To keep the most influential positions and offices in the coming kingdom in the family's hands. That's all. One cannot, I think, uh, get away from the simple fact that it was a move against Peter. It's quite clear. They were going to outdo Peter, get in first. It's a, keep it in the family. Peter's not in the family. Must keep it in the family. And the Lord said something to him about, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Well, we've got to stop that. So if we go down on either side, we'll make sure that Peter doesn't really get a look in on this thing. And this is why they did it when the others were not there. For we learn from verse 41 that when the ten heard, they were highly indignant. So they were not there. Now Christ answered their request by first telling them that they were wholly ignorant of what they were asking. In verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. It was not just a question of position and office which Christ could arbitrarily grant to them. Behind all service in God's kingdom, there has to be deep spiritual history and experience. Position and office in that kingdom is entirely dependent upon spiritual character. To share his service, they must drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism. It seems quite clear that Christ was speaking here of the cup and baptism of his suffering and sorrow. There are not only therefore things to be left behind, to be forsaken. There is not only a life to be lost in order to follow Christ fully. There is a realm of experience, a realm of fellowship with Christ, a realm of travail and conflict to be entered. In other words, there is a price to be paid if we would follow Christ all the way. We cannot bypass the cross. I think of some very well-known scriptures. I think of Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, which I think is... Uh, Good illustration of this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and fill up on my part that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I was made a minister. Or again, I think of Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto 
his death. Or I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound unto us, even so our comfort also aboundeth through Christ. Verses, verse 8. For we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning our affliction which befell us in Asia, that we were weighed down exceedingly beyond our power, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Yea, we ourselves have had the sentence of death within ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raiseth the dead. All those scriptures to me speak of this. Or again, I think of Galatians 4 and verse 19. My little children, of whom I am again in travail, till Christ be fully formed in you. Or Galatians 6 and verse 17. Um, I'll just read that because I'm not sure I shall quote it correctly. Um, Henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear branded on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. His cup, his baptism. Many would like to share the service of the Lord without the cost without the deep spiritual history and experience vitally necessary. Many would like to share his throne and glory, but not his cup and his baptism. Were John and James ready for that? Asked the Lord. Too easily like us, they answered that they were able. Then Christ told them that they would indeed drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism. But even then, he could not give them the positions they wanted. We learn here a tremendous lesson. We do not and cannot serve simply to get a reward. How many Christians are serving in order to get a reward? They think all the time, well, if I do this and I do that, one day I'll get a reward. That is not divine service. That's the old self back again with a Christian garb. That's not service. Nor do we suffer loss in order to gain some eternal position or office. It's not God's way. We serve because it is the nature within us to serve. We suffer loss because we want others to gain. Thank God then for those words. What is impossible with men is possible with God. God gets camels through the eye of a needle. I say this to myself, oh, there are very few people whose service is really of this kind. We who serve the Lord, how much there is of the other. Well, we comfort ourselves. One day we shall get a reward. One day we shall get a position. And all. This is not the Lord. He never comforted himself with this kind of thought. The Lord's one and chief concern was for others. Well, take note of that. When the other ten expressed their indignation with John and James, Christ took the opportunity of emphasizing this lesson of service. This conception of position of rank and authority and how we can get it is the world's conception and way, he said. 
This is what the Gentiles do, he said. This is the way they get it. This is their idea. They like to lord it over people. They like to domineer one another. That conception has no place in God's kingdom or work. The way to greatness is service. The way to position, to authority, is by being the slave of all. In this, the Lord has given us the supreme example. And here we have it in verse 45. For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He who more than any other had the right to demand service came willingly to serve. And he who had the perfect right to hold on to his sinless life gave it up as a ransom for us. Furthermore, he could never have served in that way and in the way he did, which we find in the Gospel of Mark, if it had not been that his life was a living sacrifice given up and given over from the very beginning. There was no thought of personal gain, no thought of personal satisfaction, no thought even of reaching a throne for personal glory. He did not serve in order to gain a throne. Christ sacrificed himself both in life and in death because of his love for us. That is service. Never prostitute service to something else. Never devalue it from that high standard and character. His burden, his thought, his concern was all for us. It is his nature to serve and to save. It is because of that kind of character and nature that he's come to the throne. That's the kind of people that are going to be on the throne. Do you know there's not going to be one single person on the throne or in the place of government in the kingdom of God who all through life was saying, now if I do this, I'll get a crown. If I do that, I'll get the crown. The Lord said, I don't want that. That would be to start the whole, the old, the old trouble up all over again. We're not going to have that kind of thing. Do they think that it's some kind of commercial instinct that I'm playing on? No, we've got to get this character into us, this character and nature of God, this life of Jesus Christ by the Spirit into our very being. It's impossible by human standards, but with God it's possible. And then we serve because we have to serve. We can do no other. We, we go out to people. I, I'm often interested in, in ministry and so on. Why do people minister? Is it because they're so concerned for the saints that they should be built up? Or is it simply to give us some wonderful little message that everyone goes, oh, oh, isn't that marvelous? Wasn't that marvelous? And then we get so crestfallen afterwards because people didn't come up and say, that was wonderful. That's what we were looking for. Oh, you did tremendously. Laid us all out. Absolutely bowled over we were. But all of us who minister were like that. Finds us out. But that's not ministry. That's not service. Ministry and service is that there's a need. 
And we've got such a burden in our hearts about that need that we can't help but move out to it and say something from God to that need. That's ministry. That's service. It's not just the word. Sometimes it acts. It's not that we're sort of doing things and saying, well, I'm such a good person, I'm such a good Christian. Anyway, it tells in the word that we should esteem others better than ourselves, so I've come to you to help you. <laughs> not that kind of thing at all. It's rather that we see a need in someone, and we love that person, and we love the Lord in that person, and we just go out, quite spontaneously. Oh, there we are. Can we serve God with another spirit? No, we can only follow Christ. There is no other path, there is no other spirit. And if we fully follow him, then we shall drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism. We shall not be too bothered about position, about rank, about title, nor even about our reward. Our concern will be to serve whatever the cost, because we can do no other. Well now, Lastly, that wonderful little story of blind Bartimaeus from verses 46 to 52. It is surely not without very real significance that this section ends as did the previous one. Uh, here, um, the training of the disciples for true service by Christ. Both these sections end with the record of a blind man getting his sight. Now, that's not, that's not without significance. <laughs> this section ended with it this section ends with it what do you think the Lord is trying to say in this section it was the servant of the Lord training his disciples for true service it began with a storm do you remember and ended with clear vision a man saw first Men as trees walking. Then the Lord laid his hands on him the second time. The only time it's ever recorded that he did it. A second time. And then he saw clearly. It began with a storm and ended with clear vision. And immediately after that, thou art the Christ. Clear vision. This section begins with the clear enunciation of the principle of the cross. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And it ends with blindness giving way to clear vision. Now let us make no mistake again about this matter. Right? The cross not only always leads to clear spiritual vision, it keeps that vision clear. And where it has been lost, it restores it. Unless we know something of the cross in our lives, then the sight, the spiritual sight we have, will become dimmed. The enemy will see to that, and the flesh life will see to it. The Holy Spirit will lead us and enable us to lay down our lives, to lose them, so that we become safe subjects for ever-increasing divine illumination and understanding. I'm always interested in the story told of Luther, that someone said to him, have you heard about so-and-so who's been caught up to the third heaven and is just outside of themselves with glory? 
and he said, it's counterfeit. And the person was shocked. I said, what do you mean it's counterfeit? He said, if it was really a being caught up to the third heaven, they would have come down with a thorn in the flesh that would have laid them low for the rest of their days. God always does that. It is the infallible way by which you can judge true illumination. And it's exactly here that we're, this is exactly what it's all about. Here is a man who gets his sight. What does he do? He follows on the Calvary Road. How beautifully Mark puts it. He didn't say that of the other one. He said, the Lord sent him back to his village. But this man says, immediately he received his sight. And he followed Christ on the way. What was that way? It was the way up from Jericho to Jerusalem to Calvary. It was the Calvary Road. He got his sight back to walk the Calvary Road. May God help every one of us here this evening just to understand what that means. And is it not interesting too that this whole section, the sound of the Lord at work, ends with this blind man, Bartimaeus, being given his sight and walking on the Calvary Road. Do you know how it began? It began with the call. Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And through all the different stories and incidents, it has progressed. That great cry of Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah. And then it went on to those immortal words of our Lord Jesus. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And it ends in clear vision. A man on the Calvary Road. Now that, to me, is the biggest lesson you and I can learn. God gives us vision so that we can keep in the way. God gives us vision so that we can follow Christ more fully, more closely, more perfectly. God gives us vision so that we can walk in the Calvary path. What was this story? There are just a few things we could say in closing. Just one or two things in passing. It was an extraordinary story, a very beautiful one. A huge crowd going up, tramp many, many feet. Huge noise of a eastern crowd. And there was a Bartimaeus in his usual place. And uh, he asked someone, what's all this about? Someone said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of and with that he began to cry at the top of his voice. Son of David, not Jesus of Nazareth. That's wonderful. Son of David. He used a messianic title. What did Bartimaeus know of Christ? That he could call him son of David. Son of David, he said. Have mercy on me. Have pity on me. Now, I tell you, he must have shouted pretty loud for an eastern crowd to tell him to be quiet. 
any of you who have any knowledge of anything to do with the yeast will know that what they call silence, we would call normally noise. So he must have been shouting. He must have, well, he must have been, to put it in a colloquialism, a slang thing, must have been a terrific hullabaloo going on there. Just absolutely bawling at the top of his voice. Of his voice. <laughs> so in the end, they, they all say, shush! Be quiet! Shut up! Can't hear ourselves talk. <laughs> and it says, he shouted all the more. Lord stopped and said, call him to me. And then the, the attitude of all the people changed. How true this is of us servants of the Lord. One moment we're telling, shush! Other things more important. As soon as we find the Lord's interest, we say, get up quickly. He's interested. They changed very quickly on that one. And he this is a very interesting detail. He threw off his overcoat, his, his cloak, his mantle, the big, thi uh, heavy cloak that they wore right over all the other. He threw it off. That means he took it off his head, got hold of it, threw it off, and sprang up. Ran. And then the Lord said, what do you want me to do? was rather a silly question in a way, but the Lord was always asking that kind of question. He knew very well what they wanted, but he wanted to get it down to them. And Bartimaeus said, that I may receive my sight again. It seems clear that Bartimaeus probably had already had his sight and had gone blind. So you'll see that in the New English Bible and the J.B. Phillips and the modern versions, it's that I might regain my sight, or that I may see again, or that I might get my sight back. He'd once seen, isn't that interesting? That's what the cross does. If through sin or folly or failing we've lost our vision, the Lord will give it back. And then he followed him in the way. Isn't this what the Holy Spirit does by the cross in our lives? He enables us to throw off the cloak which impedes us. Oh, how many might there be even in this room? And there's a cloak which impedes you. You've lost your vision. And there's something that's heavy and thick all on you. Oh, when your day comes, throw it off. Get rid of the impediment. The Holy Spirit enables us to throw off the cloak which impedes us so that we might receive clear vision and follow Christ on the Calvary Road, the path of self-sacrificing service. Well, there we are. We're finished. But we might well add that the kind of service God looks for is nowhere more clearly revealed than in this instance. The servant of the Lord, now almost in the shadow of Calvary, so obviously occupied by all that that last week of his earthly life involved and entailed, surrounded by a huge, noisy, tiring crowd, could yet stop for one genuine, impassioned,
impassioned cry of an insignificant bit of human debris. That is service. It is more. Once again, movingly and clearly, the words of the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, is shown to be no high and empty ideal, but the very character of divine sonship. May God give us that character of divine sonship, not swept along by the crowd, not swept along by some mass movement so that we overlook what sometimes God is seeking to do. Insignificant, human debris, but God is doing something. May he help us, for that way there are many who are given sight and are found serving the Lord on the Calvary Road. Shall we together? Lord, we commit ourselves to Thee and pray that, Lord, this which we confess and recognize to be impossible by human standards, impossible with man we believe Lord also to be gloriously possible with thee because Lord thou art the God of the impossible and when we see our natures and when we see what we are like naturally Lord we have to confess we are impossible and Lord to serve in this way is quite beyond but we thank Thee for that blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit who can bring that character and nature and life of Christ into our earthen bodies, our, these bodies of ours, Lord, and so serve again through us. Lord, we pray that somehow every one of us might know that kind of service. If we've never known it before, we might know it from this day. And, oh, beloved Lord, may we all be enabled to pay the price of following our Lord Jesus fully. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.